What is the evidence that the departure of Evo Morales from the Bolivian presidency was part of a U.S.-orchestrated coup d'etat? What responsibility does Evo Morales bear in the onset of the current crisis? What connection does the institution formerly known as the School of the Americas have with the role of military and police forces in Bolivia and other South American countries? Why is it necessary for solidarity activists and progressive movements to make a distinction between support for the people of Bolivia and support for the government of Evo Morales? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio program, we hear multiple perspectives on the situation in Bolivia from both within and outside the country in the hope of getting an accurate impression of the forces and personalities in play in this troubled nation. Our guests include Maine-based political journalist Tom Whitney, La Paz-based former anti-racist organizer Sarah Yarqui, University of California-based researcher Jeb Sprague, and Bolivian activist Maria Galindo. On this week's program, Deconstructing Bolivia, voices inside and outside challenge mainstream and alternative narratives. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 6th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabega King, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The inauguration of the Power of Siberia project to transport gas from Russia to China will strengthen Russia's position as the world's first gas exporter and boost economic relations between the two countries in an unprecedented way. Thanks to the U.S. politicians getting busy with their inner fights over who won the presidency and later over who is more corrupt with power in a newly controlled country, Ukraine, the excessive use of sanctions and the anti-free trade war – other global superpowers are solidifying their positions and leaping ahead in steady growth. Destroying Syria by the U.S.-led war of terror was partly because the Syrian president Bashar Assad rejected to isolate Russia and Iran by severing the relations with them and by allowing a Qatari gas pipeline through Syria to Europe, which would have starved both the Russian and Iranian nations. Toppling the Ukrainian state, destroying the country's economy, and installing puppets there by the U.S. was in part to control the Russia-West-Europe gas pipeline. From here comes the added importance of this project that would supply the Chinese economy with flowing energy source for the coming three decades, provide the Russian economy with a considerable steady income for the coming three decades, and hurting further the U.S. dollar as this energy project uses the currencies of both nations and not the currency that controlled the energy production and trade for at least half a century. That comes from the article, Russia-China Cooperation, the Power of Siberia Project, Strategic Gas Pipelines, by Arabi Suri, posted December 4th, originally published on Syria News. The mission, having designated the Rohingya to be a protected group, satisfied itself that acts of genocide had been committed. Quote, perpetrators have killed Rohingya, 
caused serious bodily and mental harm to Rohingya, deliberately inflicted conditions of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction of Rohingya, and imposed measures intended to prevent births to Rohingya, unquote. Enough then to go on in terms of mounting a legal action, albeit in slightly different circumstances. The instance of this case is irregular given that the ICJ usually undertakes such hearings after consulting the findings of other tribunals, be it the International Criminal Court or those of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. The decision by Suu Kyi to take the matter on personally in both roles as state councillor and foreign minister is garnering mixed reviews. That comes from the article, Going to the ICJ, Myanmar Genocide and Aung San Suu Kyi's Gamble, by Dr. Binoy Kampmark, posted December 4th. Unfortunately, it never takes the old guard long to regroup and creep back into power in the guise of a caretaker government, which then puts in power their candidates who will reimpose the same policies that led to an uprising in the first place. How different it could be as prime minister candidates emerge if a demonstration group would confront them with a manifesto containing the people's demands. If demonstrators could set off the uprising by mobile phones, almost instantly, they ought to be able to quickly check out the picket signs expressing people's chief demands, then help their preference for a prime minister, hunt up prospective cabinet ministers willing to quickly fulfill those demands, and provide him or her with a non-sectarian B-team a brain trust of expert advisors for all sectors of government. Such specialists would enable the new government to hit the floor running to answer those demands the moment their prime minister is chosen. That comes from the article, Lebanon Protesters Ensure a Unified B-Team Runs Any New Responsive Government by Dr. Barbara G. Ellis, posted December 3rd. Measures announced on Monday are a shot across the bow the first time Beijing imposed sanctions on U.S. organizations, a show of strength against Washington's dirty hands all over months of manipulated protests in Hong Kong. The city is Chinese territory. Its authorities won't tolerate foreign efforts to undermine its sovereignty. According to Beijing's official People's Daily Broadsheet, hostile U.S. legislation, quote, seriously violated the international law and the basic norm of international relations and interferes with China's domestic affairs, unquote. Adding, sanctions imposed show, quote, the country's firm resolution on the Hong Kong issue, unquote. That comes from the article, China retaliates against hostile U.S. legislation by Stephen Lendman, posted December 3rd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The resignation of Evo Morales from the Bolivian presidency on November 10th comes on the heels of public demonstrations of dissatisfaction with his leadership. In particular, election results of October 20th, which revealed him to be victor, seem to have triggered mass civil unrest to the point where military authorities felt obliged to recommend Morales step down. Fires reportedly set to the homes of the supporters of his political party, the Movement Towards Socialism, or MAS, intimidation of its membership and loyalists, 
prompted Morales to vacate his office ostensibly to avoid further bloodshed. The vice president, as well as other authorities next in line, have likewise abandoned their roles. Now to fill in the vacuum, a relatively obscure figure, Janine Añez, has appointed herself interim president as new elections are overseen. There are strong indications that outside forces, most notably the United States, have been playing a role in these developments. The Organization of American States and the U.S. government, through their support behind the charge of electoral fraud in the October 20th election, thereby adding fuel to the insurrection fire. One of the stated motives being the replacement of a left-leaning government with a client government more congenial to the interests of Western capital. To see if these arguments stand up, we first turned to W.T. Whitney. He's the author of a recent article entitled Evidence Talks, U.S. Government Propelled Coup in Bolivia. Tom Whitney is a political journalist, a former pediatrician, and a Cuba Solidarity activist based in Maine. He recently spoke with the Global Research News Hour to elaborate on what he sees as the key lines of evidence substantiating the coup argument. One in particular is that story that I came across of the payoff to the General Kaliman and others. Um, this is a story from Argentina, and, uh, and then it's the fact that it coincided with the visit of of, of Ivanka Trump uh, to a, a, prov- a province in northwestern Argentina, and supposedly, if one can believe it. She came with 2,500 agents, uh, and and the story goes that somehow money, and she came with a deputy uh, secretary of state, and somehow there was a connection with the main leader of the coup which is in Santa Cruz uh, and the Civic Committee and there's a guy named uh, um, Camacho uh, who is the leader, uh, Luis Camacho. Somehow uh, he got had contact with the governor of, of that province who is... Uh, a, an ally of uh, President Macri of Argentina, somehow Governor Morales of that province and Camacho were in contact. So there's a story up here. Um, it, 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 there were a couple of um, you know articles that I came across. I must say I that and so that that's that was the that was the main thing. The other thing is the use of the organization of the American states, its role as the facilitator of the coup in in that raising questions about the elections of October 20 and uh they uh, they there were questions that really weren't questions. There were the article notes a couple statistical analyses that uh, why, why the uh, irregularities or, and uh, flaws that 
were supposed or alleged by the uh, OAS, uh, you know, couldn't exist on a, based on a statistical analysis. So it's basically those two things. And then, then you could. It wasn't much. Of, it wasn't very hard to come across little bits of pieces of, of indications of U.S. embassy uh, pe- pe- people conspiring with groups in, in Bolivia, mainly the civic com- com- committees in eastern Bolivia, which have been historically the centers of uh, the coup, uh, of coup activity and rebellion against the Evo Morales government. There's been a number of attempted coups uh, across Latin America, going back to uh, Chile in 1973, or I guess you could even go to uh, the 50s with uh, in Guatemala. But as a Cuba solidarity activist, is there anything particularly unique or distinct about what we're seeing in Bolivia currently? The one, two that you referred to are the most dramatic ones, but those were a little bit crude. Uh, the CIA had, had planes uh, fl- fl- flying over Guatemala City and so forth, and there were, they, they, there were troops that were known to be loyal to the CIA. The, and in Chile... Uh, you know the quotes from Henry Kissinger and so forth. It was pretty um, obvious. This one was kind of smooth. I thought, you know, that you know, it allows the mainstream media to gloss over it. Didn't actually. There was a, a study. There was an article within a few days after the coup by. The uh, fair f a i r dot com group. It's a it's a journal. It's a uh, it's a uh, it's a group that looks at um, lies and the truth in the media, and it, it went through a whole lot of exam- examples of the mainstream media in the U.S. where it's not called a coup, and it's still not called a coup. So that would would be the unique uh, feature that it 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 was smooth. It was very smooth. That was political journalist and Cuba solidarity activist Tom Whitney. He joined us from Maine. Sarah Yarqui has a very different view of the situation. She spoke to the Global Research News Hour in late November. The former anti-racism organizer and student based in La Paz views Evo Morales and his MAS party as a large part of the problem with what has befallen the country. Although she does acknowledge Evo Morales's positive role in empowering indigenous Bolivians and developing the country and a sense of nationhood. I feel like he, or seeing him as a first Bolivian indigenous president has lifted the self-esteem of the indigenous population. Um, I think they relate to him because he has the same background as many of them. 
he was hardworking. He he was forced to work since childhood. He was hardworking. He had to um, struggle with um, uh, low education, uh, precarious conditions, discrimination mostly, and um, having to juggle between different jobs. And he ended up being president that way you know, by, by pure hard work. And he also, his government also included uh, the indigenous population in the parliament and as deputies in, in big roles inside the government. So they, indigenous population, they, they felt included in the big decisions of the country. Because um, before the, before Evo, it was the parliament and the government was mostly like whitish people with a European education about how to manage the country, but Evo included the Andean and indigenous cosmovision. So that really lifted the their self-esteem of the indigenous population. Um, also, you know, he, um, he uh, nationalized uh, the gas and a lot of resources. So all of that money comes, I mean, goes to us, you know. So we have a new sense of Believeness that we're not poor anymore. You know, we we can lift ourselves up by ourselves. There's more schools. There's more access to free education. And uh, for example, in some places, some teachers didn't speak Aymara or Quechua, but now they are mandated to. Um, the roads are better. There's more mobility in Bolivia because the roads are better. Um, uh, culturally speaking, we have a new sense of Bolivianness no, uh, that's been exploited by the government. You know, like uh, be proud of your country. Um, we have more exchange of uh, products with other countries we benefited a lot from this uh, from selling industrialized gas to Argentina and Brazil Sarah argues that the Morales government has deliberately manipulated racial divisions within Bolivian society and enmity toward the United States in order to achieve electoral gains and consolidate his political base uh, the base the base of Evo's um, campaigning has been uh, to put the indigenous population against the white population. So if Evo hadn't gone for a fourth term, it was completely unconstitutional. And the way he tweaked things to go to a fourth term was a slap on the face of Bolivians, you know. I think that Evo saw the opportunity to make it seem like a coup. So, because, um, for example, he didn't have to resign. 
he didn't have to leave the country, you know. Evo lost the referendum by uh, 51%. And he said that he lost it um, because of the rumors of him and his lover. And then he, um, he just arranged this entire story of that his lover was actually a paid uh, spy or PM, a paid U.S. spy uh, that uh, the CIA put uh, uh, in front of him in 2007. So there's uh, so many theories that they have, and it's just that the U.S., they use it as the boogeyman in everything that happens that doesn't favor Ebel. And I give you this example to show you that it's a uh, it's a constant in this government, you know. There's some uh, Evo followers that they recognize that Evo made a huge mistake by going into a fourth term, fourth term, but there are very few. Most of them just want to blame everything on the U.S. While not apologizing for the actions of the interim government, Sarah believes there have been deliberate provocations from Evo supporters. Okay. Um, well, the first uh, night after Evo resigned, uh, we had a few hours of celebration. You know, people who wanted Evo out, we celebrated a little bit. But then there were rumors that mobs of Evo supporters were coming into the city from the rural areas to loot our houses and businesses. So there was a lot of panic on those first nights. Uh, I came back from a weekend uh, outside the city and my whole neighborhood was barricaded. Like the, the streets were uh, barricaded and there were neighborhood watch of like people were scared that their property, properties were going to be looted. There was a lot of vandalism and those nights they did loot some businesses mostly in the south and in the Alto. They set the municipal transport buses on fire. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the municipalities uh, from a party opposed to mass so they burned down those buses. I don't see a reasoning uh, behind that. They burned down homes of communicators that were against mass party. Um, there was a lot of um, terrorizing neighborhoods in the south of La Paz, which is a rich white area. And also there was like a blockade. Uh, of all the important roads and cities so that food can't come in and basic uh, basic food can couldn't come in like gas or gasoline um, that that was blocked completely too from La Paz and El Alto we didn't have any gas or gasoline we couldn't cook a lot of restaurants and businesses had to uh, just uh, close doors 
because they didn't have food or gas to cook it with and or fuel to fill their their cars so they could you know go outside and search for food and there was a lot of uncertainty like uh, we didn't know when this was gonna end so it was uh emotionally and psychologically very hard for us and i think from ever since evo left there had been a lot of um people working in governmental institutions that denounced uh, denounced abuse of power from their superiors um, that they had to live under the last year's working there. You know, like being mandated to march in pro-Evo marches, having to pay from their own pockets for pro-Evo campaigns, nepotism, and just about um, all, all of, overall a lot of corruption inside those institutions institutions like just uh, yesterday the people in the national bank said that five 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 hundred twenty million bolivianos were um, moved from different institutions accounts that before ever left so and they don't know where that money went and I think uh, that's um, some of the facts um i think on the other side the new president she came into the palace with a bible you know so that sparked a lot of um controversy of whether the ultra christian right wing was coming back and that also sparked the or added to the coup conspiracy because you know Apparently, it's a right-wing conspiracy or coup. Uh, so, uh, and also, you, I think you've seen how the before she came in, the indigenous flag was uh, burned, and um, it was burned. So that ignited a lot of hatred from the indigenous. And well, there's a lot going on right now. Yeah, yeah, a lot, uh, and that's 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 some um, of the key points of what's been going on. I think you've seen what happened what happened in Senkata and Sakaba last week, when the military also opened fire against the protesters. Uh, I personally think that that's abuse of power. So. Mm. Uh, the military crackdown. Yeah. Yeah. The this government is also abusing of their power. So um we're going from one bad long government to a short one that's also really bad. So yeah. Uh that's a little a uh, short version of what's all what's going on here. It's it's, it's really a show. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can say sh- yeah. But yeah, it's a show. I was wondering if you'd like to share anything about uh, some of the personal challenges that you've encountered, uh, because uh, I know we tried to previously set up uh, an interview, and uh, th- that was uh, your circumstances were such that it, it just wasn't possible, and you had to postpone. On the day that we had the interview, or yeah, on that day, 
it was after a week of not knowing when things were going to get better. We didn't have enough um, resources like food. The food was starting to um, be really scarce in the markets. And there was a lot of anxiety and panic through the, peop- through the population in La Paz. And the day we were supposed to have the interview, there was a power outage. And I think um, I was, um, now that I see it as unreasonable paranoid, paranoid that maybe it was targeted because um, I was going to have an interview with you so they would cut my power, you know. So, yeah, that's what... Uh, that's how serious or oh, complex the situation was that I had to think about that, you know. We've been speaking with La Paz-based Sarah Yarqui. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Jeb Sprague is a research associate at the University of California, Riverside, and previously taught at UVA and UCSB. He's the author of Globalizing the Caribbean, Political Economy, Social Change, and the Transnational Capitalist Class from Temple University Press in 2019. On November 13th, he authored an article for The Gray Zone, which documents the role of the Western Hemispheric Institute for Security Cooperation, more commonly known as the School of the Americas, in the removal of Evo Morales. In a recent interview for the Global Research News Hour, he broke down his argument. Through that school, the United States has this long history for decades of training officials in Latin America officers that have a long history of taking part in massacres, regime change, different forms of coercion. Um, remember the uh, rape of so many nuns in El Salvador and violence done by people linked to that school at one time or another, the train there. So in the United States, there's a well-known group called School of the Americas Watch, probably the most well-known major anti-war group, you know, that outside of maybe like Code Pink and a few other groups like the Answer Coalition that have this long history of organizing against war in the United States. Um, but the SOA Watch, they basically keep a tab on these people that are trained at the school. And um, so I gave a talk for them recently on this research where I looked at this, this juncture, this historical juncture in the history of Bolivia where their uh, popular left-leaning government was overthrown, a government that had the first indigenous president in the country's history that had broken with Washington's diktat, that had broken with the IMF and allied itself with a lot of um, Latin American countries. Um, you know, it was still involved in the global economy. There were still, you know, big companies that invested. Um, there were a lot of contradictions. There was the rise of an indigenous middle class in the country. But at the same time, um, it was a major political project that had a lot of positive, a lot of positive achievements um, for people and for, for working class and negatively racialized, marginalized people in the country. 
And so they were overthrown on November 10th, and the people that headed up that coup had gone to this school, the School of the Americas Watch, um, uh, plotters who we know through leaked audio recordings, um, who had gone to the school, the head of the military, um, a guy named Calderon Mariscal, a colonel in the Bolivian military, and then another guy named uh, William Kaliman, who was the head of the police, um, who I found out had headed up a police attache group in Washington, D.C. throughout 2018. And by uh, using the Wayback Machine website, I was able to look at some old pages of this group's website that they've shut down, where I found a lot of information and photos about how this group worked with the FBI and other federal agencies. So um, if you read the article, it's on thegrayzone.com. Um, and, it, yeah, it basically shows how the people that headed up that, that uh, overthrow and the course of repression that's now occurring in Bolivia, how they are so deeply linked to U.S. Uh, military-industrial complex, national security state, and... Uh, and so that's that's the point of the, the piece. What would you say to, to counter the perception that this is not a coup, that uh, that this was a, a resignation and uh, the other resignations that followed were uh, simply in compliance with the recommendation and the advice that was coming from these uh, officials? Well, just all you have to do is imagine in your own country what would happen if the chief of the police, the, the top police official in Canada, had been working with, U.S. federal agencies, and then um, they called, and then and then they, the police, actually went on top of the roofs and said that they were carrying out a rebellion. They this happened on November 9th. They went on a rebellion and they were refusing to side with uh, um, Trudeau, and that they were rebelling. And then the next day, the head of the Canadian military came out calling for. Uh, suggesting that he suggested that Trudeau step down. Um, that's the head of the military saying that. So, I mean, this is like, I mean, if this isn't a coup d'etat, I don't know what is a coup d'etat. I mean, they can try to p- play it up as something else, but, you know, there were Morales' security team were being uh, offered $50,000 a piece to betray him. Um, I mean... I, I haven't published on it yet, but uh, there's some other details and things that could come out that people will publish more information, like on uh, uh, private military security agencies from the United States flying into Bolivia right in the days leading up to and after the coup. So there's a lot of other uh, material that I think will come out over time and through Freedom of Information Act documents. But I would definitely call it a coup. Um, you know, they they've conducted massacres. The why, if if it's not a coup, then why did the other individuals who were next in line to take over constitutionally, if Morales was left power, why did they not become president? So they have basically uh, kept mass, mass the movement for socialism, Evo uh, Morales' political party, um, away from taking office. I mean, so that it's not a legitimate handover of power in any, in any, in any, uh, you know, from any point of view. They, the woman that took over this Janine Anyes, 
who I believe I forget the exact percentage, but she got a tiny percentage of the overall vote and represents a very far right-wing party in the country. Um, I'm sure your viewers know about all the, you know, racist things that have come out about things she's said and written in the past, right, about indigenous people uh, not wearing shoes and that they shouldn't be in the cities, they should be up in the hills, and just writing a lot of really racist things about indigenous cultures being satanic, all sorts of things. Um, so it's very, it's very clearly a coup, and uh, there was a lot of organization, how they conducted it so quickly, um, the social media campaign. I, I, I know from research I've done on Haiti, a 400-page book I published with 100 pages of citations, where I got 11, where I received 11,000 documents through Freedom Information Act requests, where um, I documented in detail the role of the U.S. in building up, uh, building up uh, networks, contacts, and um, people in Haiti to really uh, befriend and build up uh, people that would work with them in Haiti. Um, and so they do the same thing in countries across the region and military police officials would be at the very top of the list. They're always at the top of the list of people that you want to either gather information from or flip or have some sort of influence. Why does it seem as if Morales was taken off guard? Uh, was this just an oversight? Uh, the uh, Because, I mean, these did the people like Kaliman and uh, Calderon Mariscal uh, likely have the trust of the government. And I, I remember I found out through my research when I was doing my Freedom of Information Acts on Haiti that, like, one of Aristide's, like, very closest confidants, like a very good friend, was actually feeding information to the U.S. Embassy. And I talked to people close with Aristide, and they were like, oh, that was, like, his best friend. Like, everyone was like, like, no one had any clue that this guy was doing that. Um, Bolivia never had, has never had, you know, a military like Nicaragua or Venezuela or Cuba that is, um, you know, built up, um, locally in the country without, uh, you know, without, um, connections to the United States. So there's always been, you know, I think that threat has always been there and he was probably trying a lot of ways to survive that situation. You know, the U.S. empire just has so many mechanisms at its disposal. Or sorry, at its disposal. There's such a long um, history, institutional memory, and um, the U.S. has carried this out so many times. So there's just a lot of knowledge, people that have been engaged in these activities. There's a lot of money around it. Um, also, Bolivia is an impoverished country, so there's a lot of NGOs, evangelical groups. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that uh, different influence operations and uh, covert operations and things can can be conducted. So, I think when uh, you know across Latin America, there's really been this campaign to roll back the pink tide and the big corporate media channels and different outlets on the ground and even a lot of local business people, right, that are tied in with global chains and travel around the world. I mean, there's such a, uh, a, a major ideological war being waged against 
progressive and left forces across, across the, uh, you know, across the continent, across, across the hemisphere. So that can wear people down. And then when you saw opposition groups coming out um, against Morales and the media really, you know, amplifying it, um, I'm sure who knows the type of pressures that came down on these people. Because like you said, um, it appeared that Kalimon and some of these other military officials, they, they were supposedly meeting with Morales every Monday. He would have a government meeting with the security officials. So um, he, he appears not to have uh, foreseen this, you know, such a an out-and-out, out, you know, treason by his top security officials. Um, but I think we'll only know, we'll only know uh, more on this as time goes by. Is there anything in particular about Bolivia that stands out? I mean, beyond being just another pink tide country that would necessitate uh, this coup action uh, happening at a time at the time that it is. Yeah, well, I think um, having, I mean, Bolivia is right in the center of Latin America. So as long as Bolivia stands with, you know, a president who was anti-imperialist in many ways, uh, you know, that's, that's something that they, they want to get rid of and, uh, you know, not, you know, that the fact that he could be pressured by indigenous movements, right. He had broken that contract with a German company that was going to be doing some different mining operations in the country. And there was a lot of criticism over the impact on the environment, on some of the different, um, compromises and things that he had made with, with big business. But he, you know, he, um, Indigenous groups could pop pressure him. Social movements could pressure him, and uh, he would, you know, at different points, carry out policies that clashed with transnational capital and with uh, U.S. and local oligarchs and U.S. Dic- Washington's diktat. Um, but it was always, you know, walking a very thin line because at the same time, a lot of large companies have come into Bolivia. The country, you know, cheap consumer products have have really flooded the country. Like I said, a rise of an indigenous middle class. I mean, wealthy people did not uh, suffer under under Morales to any large extent. But um, I think just the fact that uh, there was there was this government that was not hadn't completely bent the knee that engaged in a number of sovereign policies. You know that um, that couldn't be allowed. And I think the of course. Vijay Prashad has an article from a few days ago where he looked at the, the you know, Bolivia has the largest lithium reserves, so, the, you know, these minerals that are used for cell phones and computer screens and so important for the digital global globalizing economy, um, you know, that's a huge resource. And if he wanted to maintain a large uh, public stake or have part of that, you know, large... Um, earn large taxes and, uh, you know, have, have a public stake in, in that, that would have run against a lot of corporate and IMF U.S. embassy policies in the country where they push for, you know, always for the logic of, of profit and, you know, a private, 
private capital. That was Jeb Sprague, research associate at the University of California, Riverside, and author of the article, Top Bolivian Coup Plotters Trained by U.S. Military School of the Americas Served as Attachés in FBI Police Programs. His blog is jebsprague.protonmail.com. Finally, we get a perspective from Maria Galindo. Maria Galindo is a Bolivian feminist and founder of the group Mujeres Criando, a Bolivian anarcha-feminist collective that participates in a range of anti-poverty work, including propaganda, street theater, and direct action. She joined us from Mexico. She made it clear that Evo Morales and the MAS party have a checkered record when it comes to advancing social progress in the country. Evo Morales was in the government of our country 14 years. And you can cut the pieces of this government in different pieces with different uh, personalities, so to say. Is not uh, Evo is not uh, the same type of government the whole time. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Evo wanted to put in, inside his party, his politics party, the whole social movements of the country. To achieve that uh, goal, he has um, he has really destroyed a lot of social movements in the country. Second, uh, Evo had lots and lots of problems, of governmental problems. So, so he decided to solve this problem, making uh, little, uh, little, uh, how can I say that, little um, agreement with very conservative pieces of the society. For example, those uh, private concerns who uh, manage soya or uh, with a police or with a military statement. So Eva Morales in these years progressive became a very conservative uh, way of government. That's what what I can say. Okay. Now you describe November tenth as crystal knocked in Bolivia. What is your understanding of exactly what took place on that day? It was uh, a horror. It was a, a very uh, violent uh, episode in our lives because, for my understanding, it was the day in which fascism uh, get again into the social life in Bolivia. In that night, you experimented uh, lots of terror messages running uh, through WhatsApp or through Facebook or phone calls uh, that uh, every uh, um, there, there was a big risk. 
Now, there was a, a big trigger of all of this seems to have been the, uh, the election in October, October 20. Uh, opposition forces uh, across the country, the Organization of American States and uh, the United States have all alleged electoral irregularities in the vote. Uh, and, and this has been challenged by some, including the Center for Policy Research. What are your thoughts? Is there a sound basis for claiming there's electoral fraud in that election? Well, I want uh, I want to excuse myself because of my Spanglish, but I want to say to the people who are listening now to your radio that the problem didn't begin with the elections and after elections. The problem began much earlier, and with the elections became a deeper problem, became a, a bigger problem. But the problem, the center of the problem was not the elections. Anyway, I have to say that besides the point of view of the OAR uh, in Bolivia, there was no independence between the pieces of power, of state power. There is in Bolivia, since uh, many, many years, no independence in the justice, no independence in the electoral power, no independence nowhere. So it was for all Bolivians very, very clear that Evo Morales personally manipulated the decision of the electoral uh, power. And that everybody was claiming against that from the beginning. From the beginning. Because when you claimed before OER, for example, uh, the way they manipulate elections in Argentina, you had no one to listen to you, no one to give you any explanation. But I want you to understand that also the electoral law is a very conservative one and was improved by the government of Evo Morales because he wanted to control the the popular movement, the social movement. He wanted the social movement with no other way besides himself. That was a very big problem for the movement because that control was not successful because the government of Evo Morales didn't listen anybody since many, many years. They made what they wanted with whatever the social problem was, with no dialogue, with no participation, with no voice. We have a new interim government, uh, Janine Añez. Uh, are there unique threats facing uh, the progressive movements now that uh, Evo Morales is gone and uh, you've got these new people in power. Is, is there 
could you speak to those unique threats today? No, no. Today in Bolivia, you have a very extremely fascist, uh, racist uh, regime in the government. There's no way of, I mean, this government is a transitory one, but it's a very racist and fascist government. Any attacks on you or on anyone at uh, Mujeres Criando uh, as a result of this new interim government? We have, we had a lot of fear uh, if somebody came and burned our our uh, house, but I mean not our personal house, but the house of the movement. There is no direct attack, but there is a lot. I mean, militaries have sent to the streets of La Paz and El Alto, and that was an aggression against everybody because we didn't see military forces in the streets since. 30 years in Bolivia. So do you see any possibility that, uh, for, with all the criticisms you have of, uh, of, of MAS, could a, a temporary alliance in order to resolve the current problems in the country, could that be beneficial? Well, what, what I can say is that the solution for the a deep political crisis in Bolivia is not going to be easy. The future elections are not going to solve the deep political crisis in Bolivia. But, for example, we, as feminist movement, we have given uh, publicly our support to the now president of the senator. Her name is Eva Copa. She is a very, very young woman who belongs to MAS, to the to the party of Evo Morales. But you have to understand that Evo Morales went out from the country, in my perception, too early, too early. He went out too early. But after he left, the country, many, many people of his party have led also the, the, the country and have led the, the, the work wherever, and the right, the extreme right, has taken that places. And in that big crisis, this young woman said, no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to take the responsibility to guide this. And we have given to her our support because this is extremely important to support her and to find a little possibility for the social movement, for the people. Where do you see things going uh, for your country over the next few months? Well, the situation is a very critical situation. Uh, the militaries are now out of the streets. But you, you cannot 
said, oh, okay, everything is solved. They, they are out of the street because they already have the fear of the people. They have reached this clima of, this clima of fear. And, uh, you know, the things are going too fast in Bolivia, really too, too fast. And you cannot, uh, know, you, you cannot uh, have an idea, a very clear idea, because the, the Bolivian situation is a big confusion. In this moment, in Bolivia, you don't even know who is who. For all the complex problems facing the country in the current crisis, Maria expressed the cynical view that people in the colonialist and capitalist global north were shallow at best when it comes to support for and solidarity with Bolivians, and that it was up to the people of the country to ameliorate their situation. I really think there is an outside pressure to put Evo Morales as a poor victim of the situation. I want you to understand that the real victim of the situation is the people, the people who cannot live wherever, the people who are there, the social movements who are there. We need to find a solution. And it is not going to come from outside. And it is not going to come easy. And it is not going to come fast. I have to tell you that we have a lot of hope. Uh, to have hope is a very subversive uh, behavior now in Bolivia. And we are organizing a parliament of women. And in this parliament of women, we are listening to many, many women coming from different parts of the country, speaking their speech speaking not in the name of that or that other, but speaking in their own name. And I think this political practice we are making as feminists has a very deep uh, result for us. So thank you very much for listening, for your interest. And I want to say goodbye with this sentence. Macho, gracia, is not Democracia. Machocracy is not democracy. Muchas gracias. Gracias. Thank you. That was Maria Galindo, founder of the Anarcha Feminist Collective, Mujeres Criando. The group's website is www.mujerescriando.org. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week.